Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to Headspace, where we bring together three contributors from this month's edition of Prospect Magazine and ask them, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, and as February's edition of Prospect flies off the presses, we're all set to discuss people power, aka democracy. Barack Obama used his final speech as president to raise worries about its health, and it's not hard to see why. Elitism and chauvinism are breathing down its neck at home and over the web from the east, other threats are arriving, courtesy of Vladimir Putin. But is democracy all it's cracked up to be? Can the ordinary Joe really make anything happen? And how do the system's building blocks, that is, individual human beings, set about making their decisions? With me to discuss it all is The Guardian journalist Luke Harding, the uh, recovering epidemiologist Elizabeth Pisani, and the economist and writer John Kay. Let's start, uh, Luke, with the story of the hour, which is Russia's campaign of disruption in the US elections. Um, I should explain to our listeners that you're pretty well qualified to advise us on Russia's security state after um, you covered the country for several years. Mr. Putin booted you out, I think. But let's not bear grudges. Um, He says he's innocent. And so how sure can you be that he's guilty? Well, it's funny. If I cast my mind back uh, to Moscow, I was the the Guardian's Moscow bureau chief between 2007 and 2011. And I I fairly quickly, I fell foul of the um, Kremlin um, authorities who, who didn't like stories I was writing about the murder of Alexander Litvinenko in London in 2006 and about Putin's personal corruption and so on. And I had a series of break-ins at my apartment in Moscow. I was living with my wife and two kids. And one of the things that these FSB spies did, KGB spies did, I was told by the British Embassy, was put bugs in my bedroom which recorded audio, and I was subsequently told video as well. And obviously the reason I I mentioned that is we've, we've had an extraordinary week of of salacious allegations against Donald Trump that supposedly he was secretly filmed while staying at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Moscow in 2013. But one thing I can confirm and reveal exclusively to your podcast is that the FSB does does have a kind of lurid fascination with sex. I mean, they they did these crazy breakings at my house where you didn't have to be Sherlock Holmes to see that they'd been there because they left a whole series of stupid clues. They opened windows, they cut off the central heating, they deleted my screensaver. Um, And on one occasion, I came back and uh, found by the side of the marital bed a sex manual in Russian, and they bookmarked it to, to page 137. And I, I, it was one of the more surreal moments of my time in Moscow. And I opened this 
avidly and it found, found it being bookmarked to a page in orgasms how to have a better orgasm and so the kgb seemed to be implying that my sex life was not as exciting as donald trump's they'd obviously um, been listening in luke well they must have been listening in that was the message was essentially that they were listening in and in a way it's darkly funny and i used to wave this thing at dinner parties but it's also kind of germane to the story of the hour because if you believe donald trump this is all of fiction this is garbage it's a plot it's rubbish moscow denies it etc etc but it seems pretty clear to me that, that the FSB does do this sort of thing. They, they specialise in compromise, the, the word of the hour, which is kind of collecting compromising information on targets. Not necessarily on, you know, on people, very often on people who are upwardly mobile. It's clear to me that when Trump was in Moscow, they, they, for sure they would have spied on him. And it's also clear that what we've seen with, with the hacking of the US election uh, in 2016 is part of what you might call kind of Kremlin covert influence operations, which have worked spectacularly in the US. I don't think Putin probably thought that Trump would win, but nonetheless, he wanted to destabilize Hillary and and, and, and seed chaos in Russia's great kind of rival, the United States. But we've also seen all sorts of things going on in, in our own European backyard with support for far-left anti-establishment candidates with support for the far-right bank loans from Moscow to Marine Le Pen, who who last week were spotted in Trump Tower, and so on. So I, I think we have to take it seriously. We can talk about what it all means. Uh, th- this really is going on. And I think the, the, the question going forward is, is Trump actually in some informal way a, a Russian asset? Uh, I know that sounds hyperbolic, but I, I really think we're at that place. Gosh, Elizabeth. I'm curious, isn't talking about it, us all talking about it in uh, fora such as uh, the illustrious Prospect podcast, part of the goal for Putin? Isn't this part of making him a force to be reckoned with in the minds of other people who might just dismiss him as a self-serving clown? Well, I mean, absolutely. You're right. Here we are talking about Vladimir Putin. I mean, you know, one view is that he actually presides a kind of economically dysfunctional, failing, regionally important, but not globally important kind of state with terrible stats no roads, decrepit villages, and all the rest of it. But what what Putin has done extremely well, I mean, they're not very good at all that kind of infrastructural stuff. They certainly don't do democracy in any kind of form that we we would recognize. But what, what Putin is a master at, and what he actually learned at spy school in Leningrad back in the 1970s, it is about psychology and about kind of informational tricks. I mean, he, he once described himself as an expert on human psychology. And I mean, he, he learned several things. He learned that you didn't need to lock everybody up like Stalin did, that you could keep control of society by selectively repressing a few people from groups, whether it's journalists or students or political activists or whatever. But he also learned that that it's unimportant what's actually true. I mean, we, we, we debate truth in this kind of Cartesian liberal way, but actually Putin doesn't care about truth. He doesn't care about uh, lying. I mean, that's rather a useful technique that, again, he learned at spy school. What, what he realizes is, is, is what people believe is essential. If you can kind of create chaos, if you can make this kind of hermeneutic cacophony, like with the hacking, like with the US, like with spy scandals, then, then you've, sort of, you've kind of won the game because then you can get on and do your, your sovereign thing, whether it's invading Ukraine or whatever, wh- while the West is distracted and discombobulated. John, where do you think this kind of ends? I mean, uh, in his piece, Luke goes through, you know, the various statements from the um, different US agencies getting more and more emphatic about the idea that Putin was meddling. If, if, if people could get good enough at cyber warfare, then in the end, would, would they give up on the need to have real war, for example? Well, they might. After all, the, the idea of countries interfering with each other's elections, or indeed destabilising 
uh, internal politics isn't exactly new. And the United States has been a pretty extensive user of these kind of tactics. The, the novelty in this is a cyber side of it. There is the plus that cyber warfare doesn't involve killing people in quite the same way that conventional warfare does. And the minus that actually it's much easier to, to, to keep under wraps or you don't have to be aggressive and apologetic about it in the way you do with physical warfare. You have a pretty good idea of whether your country is at physical war or not. Cyber warfare appears to be something that's going to go on all the time. Um, Elizabeth, one um, of the things that may not have happened this year, but um, there's a lot of experts have been reported on in New York magazine saying could happen is that you could penetrate the, the, the kind of voting machines uh, potentially via cyber war and then not just kind of release damaging stories, but actually switch votes so into ballot box stuffing kind of but from the other side of the world i think that's true um i spend a lot of time in indonesia which is possibly one of the most um vibrant democracies uh, at the moment in good and bad ways so indonesians are forever voting having been you know more or less a one-party state for most of the first five decades of the country's existence they're now super democratic mm. and every ballot so they it's a as you know, it's the third most populous democracy in the world. They have more than half a million voting stations at every election. There are about seven elections in a five-year cycle. And at every single one of them, every ballot, which is on a piece of paper, you vote by sticking a nail through the photograph of the candidate that you're, you're voting for. Every ballot paper is opened in public and held up and shown so that people can see, yes, that vote was by that person. And in a way, I'm beginning to think that going back to those systems, mm. the ballot, the first count is done by four o'clock on the afternoon of voting day. And now we've got all kinds of fantastic cell phone apps for people to be reporting at their voting station upwards to independent watchdog groups so that they then can't have too much tampering at the higher levels, which is where the tampering used to happen. And I'm sort of thinking, gosh, going back to old fashioned mark an X on a piece of paper, um, maybe all Might of that. be where we have to end up. What, what's your thoughts, um, having worked in lots of parts of the world, but in Indonesia, what do you think needs to be there in the culture for a democracy to work? Well, I think that what's happening in Indonesia right now is very interesting, actually, because democracy is working very, very well at the local level. And I think what needs to be there in the culture is the idea of accountability. And at the local level, that is happening. At the national level, it's not happening so well. Um, and so what we're seeing is that at some local levels where local government heads who are voted for um, directly have begun to exercise what is uh, termed political entrepreneurialism um, mm. by Indonesia watchers, which actually just means doing shit that the, that the electorate wants, not populist necessarily but popular delivering on healthcare delivering on infrastructure delivering on better education people who do that get lobbed up to the next level and we yeah. now have someone who's president of the nation who came from a small town mayor no political backing no party backing then became governor of Jakarta again with virtually no political backing and now is president on the popular vote 
And what we're seeing now is a massive backlash against that from the old forces um, from both the left and the right. But the thing that gives you optimism is this, is this sort of bottom-up growth. Yeah, but that, re- that requires a kind of micro-democracy which demands very deliberate accountability. And so I vote for you and I see what you do for me. And I think that in many more established democracies, we've lost that link. And it's not there, I'm guessing, Luke, in, in Putin's Russia, the, the kind of middle space, the civic society between the individual voter and the big man on the ballot paper? No, I mean, a civic society has been squashed, Tom, over the last sort of 17 years, really. I mean, there is still a kind of opposition, but but it's it, it's 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 non-systemic. It's outside the system. Um, so there's a kind of fake opposition. But what I think is kind of quite interesting is this whole kind of conversation about kind of institutions. I mean, but, but before I kind of moved abroad as a foreign correspondent, I, I, I thought Britain was rather a kind of boring place with boring policemen and boring judges and really very boring politicians. I mean, I, I left at the sort of tail end of the John Major era. And sort of spending time in autocratic Russia, covering wars in you know, Iraq and Afghanistan. I, I also had a sort of stint in India. You, you come home, as I did when I was sort of de- deported from Russia in 2011, and, and you just realised how important institutions Ah, and two in particular, I think one is a kind of independent legal system is is absolutely essential to a kind of to a decent society. And the other is to to not have kind of impunity. I, I remember just talking to my friends in Moscow when I explained that Tony Blair had been fined on the Heathrow Express uh, coming from central London because he didn't have a ticket. And, and they just couldn't understand it. The idea that a prime minister could be fined for fair dodging was like something <laughs> kind of, you know, extra galactic. It just the, the fact that the law applies to everybody. The fact that I spent a long time, I've just my most recent book is on the murder of Alexander Litvinenko. And I think one of the reasons that the, the operation went so badly wrong from a Kremlin point of view is because they sort of mirror think. They think that Western society is essentially a kind of shinier version of, of Russian society, but deep down everyone is kind of equally corrupt and venal and so on. And what they didn't realize was that when, when, this, when Litvinenko got got poisoned with a radioactive cup of tea and died, that actually Scotland Yard and the, the judicial process would leap into action and kind of investigate, which it did. Because in Russia, of mm. course, if you're a critic of Putin's and you're gunned down, nothing happens. That's, that's the whole point. So I am pro-institution. And John? Uh, I remember having the conversation about uh, uh, when I when said Denmark is the happiest country in the world. Uh, and then someone said, but Denmark is so boring. But these things aren't unconnected. <laughs> John, do you, do you think, I mean, democracy is, what, 2,000 years old for most of that time. Perhaps it's only been the last hundred it's been regarded as success. For most of that time, it's been dismissed as a, a rather shambolic way of running things. Do you think it is conceivable it could fall out of fashion again? It clearly is. I mean, we've lived for the last 25 years since 1990 in, in an environment of which a lot of Fukuyama's end of history is really true. You know, that is a pluralist world with... Um, lightly regulated capitalism and liberal democracy. And this is a very exceptional period in human history. And it's not very surprising that we get reactions against it. And I attribute reactions really to, to two things. One are some of the obvious failures of the market economy, which were epitomized in 2008 and which haven't really been addressed. And the other is that that kind of aggressively pluralist world probably doesn't concede enough for people's needs of identification and 
to relate to groups in which they function. Um, Voting, of course, isn't the only way to change things. There's also campaigning. And Elizabeth, you've written for us about the travails of a New York social action group called ACT UP. Just tell us who they were and and, and what they did. ACT UP was a group of uh, young, mostly gay, mostly white men in New York at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. Many of them were from media backgrounds, um, in the arts, and they started seeing themselves and their friends get sick in a very frightening and unexplained way um, and begin to die off. Um, This was before the HIV virus had even been identified um, as the cause of, of AIDS. And they started to use their skills in media and and lobbying and um, to try and get government attention. And they failed for a very long time. There was virtually no money for research on this. Um, There was almost a deliberate silence um, Mm. on the part of the mainstream media. Uh, And so they got very mouthy uh, and in a very creative way. And they essentially invented... Um, patient activism and they really changed the way that we do health research. Was it what, sort of publicity um, stunts or what, how did they get attention? So they did it in two ways um, that were importantly interlinked. So they were very, very good at publicity stunts. Um, so they would do things like stage die-ins on Wall Street. Um, they would invade um, the headquarters of uh, of pharmaceutical companies that they felt weren't doing enough to develop drugs that might help them. Um, They made a giant condom and clothed uh, Senator Jesse Helms's house in it as he was making homophobic remarks in in Congress and and blocking money for HIV, saying basically they're faggots, they deserve it. Mm. And so they were very, very good at the stunt. But at the same time, uh, they also learned about science. So none of them were scientists. Not one of them was an epidemiologist or any kind of virologist or any kind of a scientist. And the scientific establishment really didn't want to engage with them. Mm. Um, because until HIV, really, until this group, the scientific establishment did its thing in its labs and didn't talk to patients until they came in to have drugs tried on them. And these guys thought that they had something to add to possibly to, to the conversation about how drugs should be developed, what drugs were needed. Um, and so they taught themselves they had a kind of science club and I came across I was going through some archival stuff the other day and I came across the very first kind of bulletin that they put out of how to be an AIDS activist mm. their number one rule is first know your shit <laughs> um, and they really taught themselves a lot and and in the end they yeah. forced the scientific establishment to take themselves to take them seriously because they knew more than the docs did because they were the ones who were getting sick I, I mean we us non-scientists have a very particular idea, John, I think sometimes of scientists as kind of disinterested and kind of rolling along doing their own thing in their own way. But this is a reminder, isn't it, that to understand certainly the impact of science, but maybe even to understand the direction of science sometimes, you've, you've got to grapple with the social science of what's um, shaping the way the scientists are thinking too. It's certainly true that what scientists research on and the way they report it is socially conditioned and I think I think you're right that people try and pretend there's an objectivity about science and the directions of scientific research which isn't true on the other hand I feel a bit nervous about Elizabeth's account you know I like the idea of people gaining real scientific knowledge 
and pushing science in directions in which it would otherwise not go. Uh, but I have a feeling that a lot of what she's describing, which is essentially intimidation of people whose views you don't agree with, and you may be right, they may be right, who knows? That's a matter ultimately for society and democracy in a proper democratic society to arbitrate on. Well, but actually, I feel relieved by the fact of uh, people putting a giant condom around Jesse Helms' house, even if he's saying things which a lot of us would profoundly disagree with. Yeah, I, I think that what was what was important about the activism was, I mean, I, I agree with you that antics like that can be just as uh, socially unacceptable as the sorts of views that are that are being visited on on the people who who engage in activism but i will say that it is those stunts that draw media attention to an issue mm. that then open the door for the people who are the more effective activists and and by which i mean the ones who have done their homework who are trying to engage and who are trying to push uh, research in directions which in our rather slow moving uh, institutions, it won't necessarily rapidly go. Luke, do you see any parallels with I don't know Pussy Riot? Well, uh, I, I know I know Pussy Riot pretty well. That they, they they've split up. I, I regret to inform you, like like all great uh, anti-Putin feminist uh, post-punk bands, that they they were not to last. But um, in a Russian context, it's kind of it's tricky. I mean, there are people who do um, civil society protests. Some of them very imaginative uh that there's a, a a guy called pavlensky who for example um set fire two years ago to the doorway of the fsb the main spy agency in moscow you know the Lubyanka, where, where people were famously shot during the kind of kgb period but but of course he he was very promptly kind of arrested so w w while the protest movement i would say in contemporary russia is as kind of fertile and imaginative as it was in early 1980s San Francisco or, or, or New York, the political space is, is, is much smaller. And if you think about what happened with Pussy Riot, they, they played a rather bad, screechy song making fun of Putin for about 40 seconds in, in the main cathedral. And they got nearly two years in the Siberian jail for that. Uh, and so there are brave people doing things. But, but sadly, the, the space in Russia for, for, for kind of activism is, is really quite small. The wisdom of uh, any democratic decision, of course, is going to depend on the way that voters make their choice. Now, John, you've written for us about behavioural economics. And if I read you right, one of its central learnings is that real people really don't process information like disinterested Vulcans. And furthermore, you're not sure this is a, a, a bad thing. No, I'm not. And I'm not sure it's a bad thing either. Um, we economists have had a a rather particular model of rationality and rational choice, which we've imposed on people, and we've claimed both that it's a description of how people behave and that it's a normative description of how people ought to behave. And I'm not sure that either of these things are true. What Kahneman, Tversky, and others, the behavioral economists we talk about in the piece, what they've shown is they've documented a whole list of ways in which people don't just behave, in inverted commas, irrationally, but they actually behave systematically in these irrational ways. It's now, one I, example, because it's quite abstract. Right, right. I, right, I, I give what, a, what is quite a famous example, which is so-called Linda problem. 
and that is you're given a description of Linda, which uh, tells you that she's a, a kind of social activist, a feminist, etc. And then you're asked which of the following two is more likely. Linda is a, is a bank manager, and Linda is a bank manager who is active in the feminist movement. Now, a high proportion of people say the second uh, bank manager who is an active feminist, and then the response from people who are brought up in the tr kind of tradition that I've been brought up in is to say that that can't be true, because since not all bank managers are feminists, to put it mildly, uh, it's more like it must be more probable that Linda's a bank manager than that she is both a, a bank manager and a, a feminist. Yeah, I, I failed your Linda test triumphantly. I would definitely go she was a bank manager and a feminist. But but surely my kind of layman's intuition is superior to, to your, you know, desiccated economist's view of the world. Isn't that right? This is what but, I think, well, therefore that's true. Uh, and that's my view too. If you're told a story about Linda and then told, her, by the way, she's a bank manager, this just isn't a satisfying story. You're not going to act on this information without getting some sort of verification or, or more. And that, for me, is an entirely rational way to behave. Really, the way we make sense of complex situations in the world, which we don't fully understand, is by constructing stories about them, that we acquire enough information to, to, to create some kind of narrative, uh, and then we fill in the gaps in order to make sense of it for us. Now, sometimes that goes wrong, and we've talked earlier about quite a number of the ways in which it, it has gone wrong. But the word narrative is now being used much too frequently and exploited by people who are making use of what we're thinking of as these kind of irrationalities. But actually, there are good evolutionary reasons why people have come to think and approach difficult problems in these ways. Can I just push you, John, though, on where that leads you in terms of democratic processes and so on? Think of the Brexit vote. Think of Trump. Um, uh, a lot of people were voting with their gut, we might um we might guess um you're saying that individually evolutionary terms it makes sense for people to be led by their gut quite a lot of the um the the time even if economists don't like it but then what do you think about the way that that aggregates up when when, when you have a vote does that worry you well i i think it worries me a lot and i think it, it takes us to the the ways in which we think about democracy i mean i think once brexit was framed as a complex technical issue which essentially it is, what will be the impact on GDP, the National Health Service, and so on, then it's inappropriate to put that to a referendum because people don't and can't have the kind of information they need to take informed views of that. On the other hand, something like the Scottish independence referendum, that really is about how people feel. Do they recognise a Scottish identity ahead of a, a British one? And equally, the power of democracy, it seems to me, is not in consulting people over a whole set of individual issues, but in inviting people to have a sense of, are you happy with the way these people are managing things, or do you think someone else can do it better? Earlier, you underlined um, the importance of uh, essentially tribalism, the need to feel that we belong, the need to feel that we have a community. 
and said that that may be antithetical um, to democracy in highly pluralist societies um, because if someone needs to have a tribe and it, you, you get to a situation where the largest tribe will always win if you're voting in the interests of your of your tribe, whatever that is, whether that's ethnic or uh, social or economic or, or whatever. What's the resolution of that going forward? I think a resolution is difficult, but maybe it's not facing up to the fact that societies are better off if they're not very pluralist in that sense. Go back to the Denmark example. One of the successes of the parts of the reason for Denmark's success in my mind and the success of, for example, some of the other Scandinavian countries is they are small, rather homogeneous societies in which it's feasible to maintain high degrees of empathy and solidarity between the individuals or members, members of it. And in bigger states, when necessarily people are comprised of different groups, both ethnic groups and intellectual groups and so on, it's actually much harder to maintain democracy in this kind of sense. That's, to my mind, part of the reason why you can't have referenda that decide issues by votes of 55 to 45 or 58, 52 to 48, because you're not actually finding a consensus of what people believe. You're just asking the question, who is the slightly bigger tribe? So then we come always to the perpetual situation like the Netherlands, essentially, of a, of a perpetual uh, coalition. I think, in a sense, a functioning democracy is always going to be a, a perpetual coalition. That isn't necessarily inconsistent with a two-party system, because parties within a two-party system are typically themselves coalitions. Let's bring things back um, for a minute to a less successful um, democracy, um, Russia, Luke. Um, thinking about these different ways you might appeal to voters, you know, head versus gut. I'm guessing Putin's a, a, a gut man. Do you think that's right? Well, he, he doesn't have to be an any man because, <clears throat> I mean, he, he essentially um, elections in Russia are not kind of real elections, which is not to say that he's not genuinely popular. He is. But in a world in which the opposition has been squashed and state TV praises him at breakfast, lunchtime and at dinner. I mean, I mean, elections when I was in Russia before I was there and subsequently are essentially kind of fixed so so we we don't have democracy in russia but we have a kind of uh, a sort of shiny pastiche of democracy where people do go to the ballot box they do vote there are posters but but what's used extensively is what's known in russia as administrative resources in inverted commas which is essentially state governors told that you need to deliver a certain percentage of the vote and what's interesting is if you do some mathematical modeling a lot of the kind of polling data from stations converges around the 60%, 65%, 70% kind of mark, which is clearly what they've been ordered to kind of deliver for the kind of ruling United Russia Party. So it's it's a sort of sham election. Um, people still still vote. Uh, I mean, there are anomalies. There are also kind of absurdities. You, you, you get some districts of Chechnya, for example, where the, the, the vote for Putin is about 103%. But it's interesting listening to John. I mean, if you could choose between dull old Denmark and, and Russia, you, you would almost certainly want uh, to live in Denmark. And what, what's been interesting sort of inside Russia is that the, the people who've been most patriotic, especially this week, this month, in their support of, of, of Putin, the whole kind of elite class are the same elite who send their kids to British private schools, to American universities and own property in central London that, that prices the rest of us um, 
out to the suburbs. So it's on the note of Vladimir Putin that we're going to have to end, proving that he's got not just inside our heads, but inside our conversation. The February edition of Prospect magazine features these essays and more besides, including Emma Crichton Miller on David Hockney and Samir Rahim reporting from Lebanon on the stories of the refugees. That's in the shops from Thursday the 19th of January, or of course... You could do even better and go to prospectmagazine.co.uk and hit subscribe. I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. And we'll see you again next time. Goodbye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.